0: Well, as I mentioned, I'm the youth pastor, and I get to work with teens, and we love to make fun of teens. It's like an an American pastime. We like to point out their quirks and different things, but have you ever stopped and just been amazed by teenagers? Have you ever just looked at how incredible that they are? It's easy to tease when they've gone past the trash can for the 18th time in a row, and it's their job, and we all know that it's their job to take the trash out, and it just keeps piling up because they, in their many amazing, amazing things, they can cram at least one more item in the trash can, which means it's not time to go out yet. But that's not the amazing that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the things like they have reached The start of their athletic peak. Now, it goes for a long time, and at least for males, if you're paying attention to professional sports, the peak is 27 to 30. But if you're looking at females, especially Olympic gymnasts, their peak is their teen years. They're done by the time a two enters their age, most of them. There's not a lot of old gymnasts. Instead, they're teen years. In fact, the rule for the Olympics limits them because they can't start as young. But they do amazing things as teenagers. I don't know if you've ever walked into a room like this and seen how the teenagers greet each other, especially the teenage girls. We should learn from them because they actually do it right. We are the ones that mess it up. We're the old people that see your best friend that you haven't seen forever and look at them and give them a little nod. Hey, nice to see you again in a decade. Teenagers cannot have seen each other for 10 minutes. And when they see each other, especially teenage girls, it's as if it's been a decade. But maybe they get that right. Maybe they're the amazing ones that understand, no, the relationships are about the most important thing on the planet. And 10 minutes apart is 10 minutes too long as long as it's a healthy dynamic of that and not an unhealthy one. Maybe it's just watching them. I get to see this and it's amazing all the time. And yes, it's comical. And yes, this is sometimes what we get to make fun of. Although you should hear me make fun of you adults when you do similar things. And it's supposed to be fully on. But when the abstract light switch which is, I heard this from Mark Ostricker for the first time, it's not an on-off switch, it's a dimmer switch. And it gets gradually turned up. And the more you develop it, the more it gets turned up. But it doesn't start really until your teenage years. And it's amazing to see them start to connect things about faith and life in an abstract way. And it's really comical when you see adults that seem to be turning that dimmer back down But it's not a funny ha-ha comical. It's a tragedy. (laughs) But with teenagers, it's getting turned up as they see this world in a new light, literally, in dimensions they haven't imagined before. That's part of what amazes and sometimes frustrates us about teenagers is, is they look at the broken world that we live in. They don't set up a house with a white picket fence. They look at the broken world and say, it's supposed to be better than this. And then they butt heads with the cultures above them as they try to make it better in a different way than anybody's tried before. Or maybe in the same way many people have tried and it just keeps failing before sometimes, but it's new to them. They're amazing. And that's what we encounter as Advent, our Advent reading pointed out in the Christmas story. We have an amazing teenager account who collides with the crazy and impossible God that loves us and shows us grace and looks at God and says, all right, I'll follow you there in a way that most adults wouldn't, although her cousin Elizabeth is on a similar crazy and impossible journey. Turn to Luke one. Verse 26, this is a very familiar passage, but I'd remind you of one other aspect of Christmas. Well, I guess two are entertainment, but songs and movies. We return to the very same Christmas songs and movies all the time. I cannot tell you how many versions of Scrooge I've already watched this Christmas time, that I also watched last Christmas time, and I've been watching since as a teenager and younger, but especially as a teenager, my dad introduced me to the many other versions besides Mickey's Christmas Carol of the Scrooge story. But Mickey's Christmas Carol is one of the best. The best, in my opinion, is the Muppet Christmas Carol. But you can be wrong if you want to. Luke 1, verse 26 through 38, And the angel departed from her. I don't care how many times you've heard the story of Mary being told about the virgin birth. Like Scrooge and the Christmas songs we love to come back to. This is a story worth returning to. Because it's in some ways, or at least in the historical crux of the moment, Christmas and the cross. It's the start of the grace story. Now the reality is the grace story has been throughout all of scripture. God is weaving one redemptive arc through all of history, but this breaking into it moment, the incarnation, starts at Christmas. We should never get tired of coming back to the story, no matter how many times you heard it. If I preached it this week, and then again next Sunday morning, and then again at Christmas Eve, it would be okay, because what better story to tell? It's just like going to the 10th version of Scrooge and the Christmas Carol. We like it because it's a great story. And this is the best story. So if you're 90 years old and you're tired of the the Mary story and Jesus being incarnate, wake up to it maybe for the first time because that means you haven't gotten it. And if you are a teenager that's tired of it for the third story time around on it, when you've been paying attention in the abstract stage of life, turn the dimmer switch up a little bit more so that you catch a nuance of it maybe you haven't before but that we're familiar with it is no less amazing of a moment when we encounter it. So as you hear these words, we're gonna walk through them again, and they are not most likely new to you unless this is your first day in church, in which case, welcome, we're glad you're here. Or the first day in big church, and you missed the days in Sunday school when you got taught it before, in which case, welcome, we're glad you're here. But if it's your 100th time around in the Mary story, Enjoy it again. We're looking through it, and it points out it's the sixth month. This is pointing to Elizabeth's birth or pregnancy. Elizabeth is now in her sixth month. The verse is right before it. It said her fifth month. A month goes by. Verse 26 pops up. Mary's being told she's going to have a baby too. So you have an old lady who's barren. She's postmenopausal, and she never had kids, anyways. She's doubly barren, if you want to put it that way. She can't have kids. She's past the age of having kids. And if you have noticed the theme throughout all of Scripture, God likes to do things through weird and unexpected pregnancies. He's got two of them here. But this is not the first time God has done this. He's done it in Genesis multiple times. And he's doing it again to call attention to the people around them of, hey, it seems like a different moment again. Maybe I should pay attention to the God who keeps surprising the nation of Israel with weird baby birds. Not weird baby birds, but weird baby birds. Okay, separate the words correctly. But he's getting their attention. It's a green flag of wake up. Something's about to happen. So in the sixth month, Elizabeth is six months along. She's kind of been hiding herself. Not an embarrassment. We're going to see that in a minute, but just of what do you do when you're not supposed to be pregnant and you're really old? No offense to the, the, us old people or the old people. that you, If you're putting yourself in your category, you did that. I didn't. But I don't think I'm going to go hang out with the Mommy and Me Club yet, especially without the baby. They don't, we're in different generations. What do we do? But it's pointing out John the Baptist is six months along, and now Jesus is coming, and Jesus... Is even bigger but you have two impossible pregnancies and then the angel Gabriel shows up visits Mary we're about to have one of those amazing teenage moments because if you've noticed every other time an angel shows up in scripture immediate panic I'm about to die aren't I and the teenage Mary has a little different response it's interesting If you pay attention to, if you're bored this week, go read all of the angel encounters that happen in Scripture. None of them are quite like Mary's and not just in the message. She has a different response. It's very interesting. But the angel Gabriel comes along. If you're familiar with angels, by the way, and you might have seen, uh, it's either an ornament, it's a tree topper, that's what it is. Anybody seen the tree topper of of an accurate angel, and then they give you like a seraphim or a cherubim, well, it's not a cherubim, because that's the, well, it's a more authentic cherubim maybe, but it's this weird looking thing with all the eyes on it. Yes, okay, that is what angels look like, but that's not what Gabriel looks like. That's a kind of angel, get your angelology right. It's a different kind of angel. But the other one is we see angels constantly when they appear before people take on a human appearance. It just seems to be how God does that. Partly, they're already terrified. Imagine if the multi-eyed creature is the one that showed up and you're one of the shepherds in the field and the rest of the story that's coming up. Not this morning, next week. But that would be even freakier. Gabriel shows up, meets with Mary. Here's another thing you can do if you have some extra time, as we have as a church a couple weeks or months ago now, but go look at Job, the encounter with Job, and the encounter with Peter, and the encounter with Daniel, when not with Job, but the others, an angel shows up while Job and Peter get challenged by, by Satan in a discussion with God to be sifted Or how they're treated. Daniel has an encounter with angels. Go compare them to this account. It's kind of interesting. It's a little different perspective. But go look at them. She encounters Gabriel, starts talking, and she doesn't immediately go to freak out point. It does say don't be afraid, but that's not what's said first, which is every other angel encounter in scripture. Mary's isn't don't be afraid first. He has a different greeting for her. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Do not be afraid comes next. But here it's just, God's with you. It happens in Nazareth. If you're familiar with how the people at the time spoke about Nazareth, they looked down on it. The apostles looked down on Nazareth when they start. You can go see that in their discussions when they're called. I'm following this guy from Nazareth. Why would you follow somebody from Nazareth? Even worse, if he's from Bethlehem. What are you doing? This doesn't make sense. And yet, that's what's going to happen. Then it also points out, he's of Joseph, and Joseph is the house of David. That's the kingly line. So this one is going to be a king. That's going to come back and be stated in a minute. But he starts. He came to her and he said, greetings, O favor one, the Lord is with you. Not, Do not be afraid, but the Lord is with you. That's what we want to hear, but notice her response. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. We finally have an angel that encounters somebody in the way that you would hope that they'd encounter you. Hey, God's, God's a fan of yours. And her response is, I'm perplexed. I don't, this doesn't make sense to me. First, why are you talking to me? And second, what do you mean he's, a, he's favorable toward me? What do you mean that I've found his favor? What do you mean that the Lord is with you? She's processing it. You have a teenage girl that's encountering an angel, awesomely, again, this is an amazing part of teenagers, she's not struggling in the way that some of the others do. She doesn't go to false worship, which is they're not, not their intention, but they get corrected for it all the time. Oh, you're an angel. Let me build you an altar. Don't build me an altar. I don't want to die. I saw Satan fall. We're not going down that, route, that road again. Instead, Peter does that, by the way hey, let's build a tabernacle for the other people, not Jesus. Tabernacle being tabernacle, a tent being the tabernacle. Instead, she just goes to, what do you mean God's with me? I'm perplexed. I don't understand. I'm processing. It's a teenager in their amazingness, a godly teenager, wrestling with what am I being confronted by right now? I don't know what's happening. And then we get into Some of the other details. I skipped, sorry, I skipped ahead a little bit on on myself. But verse 27, to a virgin. It's going to say that multiple times, but twice it's emphasized. Don't ever lose sight of this. We believe the impossible. Teenagers are great at this. They believe impossible things all the time. Teens, I'm going to tease you a little bit. Sorry. But they're convinced that they're going to be the less than one percenters that can accomplish things that nobody ever does. That's partly why they accomplish it so often. They're convinced they can. I already know I can't, (laughs) so it's not going to happen. But the reason they want to be baseball players and and basketball players, athletes and celebrities and they're going to live as a YouTuber and the parent is thinking, I don't even have a basement. I better start digging now because they're going to be living in that basement forever because this has no future in it. But the teenager knows I can make millions upon millions. And you ask, well, how? And they point to the three people that have managed to pull it off so far. And as a parent, you're saying, I think we need a better plan. But as a teenager, they believe the impossible. I can be one of those three. I'll be the next one of the three. And it's going to last me until I'm 65. Because who doesn't want to pay attention to a 65-year-old YouTuber? (laughs) Teens, have a backup plan, by the way. Just saying, just in case. But by all means, go chase that dream if God will take you there. Honor him along the way. But as a people of faith, we believe impossible things. If you can't believe that a God of all power can do impossible things from a human perspective, then you're going to be in trouble with everything about our faith. If you can't believe in a virgin birth, how can you believe in the incarnation in the first place? How can you believe in a God of grace? If you can't believe, and you can put any fill in the blank that you want to with faith. If you can't believe the biblical stand on this social matter or on this holiness issue because of this. I don't believe that we need to honor God in this way anymore. It's a past thing because, well, this is how the world works now and it's different. And Paul didn't have a phone. Whatever it is you're going to encounter the most impossible thing to believe when you reach the cross. That God can forgive you. It's easy to believe that I'm a mess up. It's impossible to believe that God cared enough to do anything about it. So every other impossible thing that we bump into in Scripture is almost irrelevant compared to the cross. That the God who made all of us would take our place at the cross is the most impossible thing to believe. And if you're, care, if you're clinging to that one, everything else that God says that is crazy and impossible is something like a teenager to just be embraced, or as a teenager to just be embraced. Yes, yes. That impossible thing can be true because that God is God. And I can believe this one because I got a more impossible thing to believe. He said I'm new creation. And you all don't even think that my brain is fully engaged yet. God does impossible things. And here in verse 27 It's a virgin birth. 28 again, favored one. 29, I just think she has a funny response there. 30, if you're looking at verse 30, here's how God favors her. If you've ever struggled with how God has blessed you, take a look at hers and remember hers and remember that she's a teenager. This would be hard to handle at Elizabeth's stage of life let alone as a teenager, when you're looking forward to all of those impossible things in the future, but you couldn't fathom this one. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Mary looks at him and, he's, and she says, Well, I know how this works, though. And that's not how this works. But you look at that, some favor. And yet it is. She gets the frontest row seat of watching the Messiah. I know that's not a word. I make them up all the time because we need better words. She is in the prime seat of watching him grow up. She's the one when we hit the wedding at Cana that looks and says, He'll take care of it. I don't know what he's going to do, but I know that he's going to do something because she's watched him grow up. And we don't have the details of what that looks like apart from one story. But we see Mary at the first recorded miracle prompting him along and saying, oh, he can save this one. I believe in possible things and I have since I was a teenager. But some favor to be an outcast, possibly to be dismissed by Joseph. At this point in the story in Luke, we don't know his response yet. Of course, we know his response. But don't miss in his response what it almost was. She knows what it might be. She knows what it's supposed to be by the law. And she knows if God's asking this, it's going to be a hard road. And yet she's up for that favor Anyways, even if it is being ostracized or potentially abandoned by Joseph. She knows it's not death because of what it means, but she does know that it's on the table at least. But then here's some other things that she does know because she's told her 31 and 32 and behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. She's told that he's divine. She understood that. Now, did she fully understand that? No. Do you fully understand that? Hopefully enough. But do we struggle to explain that and and explain perfectly the tension of his divinity and his humanity? Yeah, sometimes we mess up on that. Or sometimes we're struggling with all the specifics of what it means. We know it and we cling to it and we can state it with orthodoxy. But do you really grasp what that means? Because it's easy to lose perspective of all the time. This is God divine. This is not just a baby from Bethlehem and Nazareth. This is God incarnate. And if you think you completely understand that, theologians have been wrestling with the intricacies of what that means since it was stated. And actually maybe even before that, since it was prophesied. It says that he's divine. It said he'd be internally enthroned. First, that he would be enthroned. That's an impossible thing for her. Could you imagine if she walked out to her family and dropped the double bomb on them of one, I'm pregnant, don't kill me, and two, it's all right, he's gonna be a king, the king, the house of David, and it's gonna be forever. They wouldn't know what to do. They would react just like we would if your teenager A teenager in your family popped up or from the neighborhood and and just was on the porch. They're going door to door for the next school fundraiser because there's 3,000 of them, right? So trying to sell you a candy bar and a pair of mittens and maybe some socks that you don't want, but you feel pressured to buy. And at the door, they say, hey, by the way, I'm going to have a kid at the end of the season and they're going to become the president forever. Votes are done. They're going to be the president and they're never going to die. I don't know that you'd buy their stuff, actually. You'd probably think, okay, wait, are we sure you're on a team? And if I give you money, is it going to go to the team? Because I'm not sure of anything you're saying anymore. You're not making sense. This is not amazing. This is ridiculous. It isn't just impossible. This is ludicrous. And yet, she doesn't have a problem with it. She does still get hung up on the virgin birth thing a little, more just in how it's going to work. But she seems to understand, and she certainly was told and heard, he's divine and he's eternally enthroned. That also, by the way, gives you a hint of how Joseph is going to respond because the house of David was connected to him. At least in her understanding, maybe she would have picked up on that. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, here's her only objection, She doesn't say, I don't want this. She doesn't say, well, how's that throne thing gonna work? How's he gonna live forever? In fact, in a little bit, she's gonna be told, he's not gonna live forever. He's gonna die, and her heart's gonna be crushed. But he is gonna live forever, even still. But that's a different part of the story. Her objection is this, the one that makes total sense to us. How will this be, since I'm a virgin? She says, I've seen the Pixar short. The clouds up there in the skies, needing the babies together, and the stork brings it down. And there have been no clouds, and I haven't seen a stork. How in the world am I going to be pregnant? This has not happened. I know that's not what it says. We have little kids in the room, I'm just helping the parents out. But I know how this works. We're not having storks anytime soon in my neighborhood. So, you want to help me out with that one? I got the rest. I understand he's divine. I can live with that. I understand that this is going to happen to me. I'm okay with that. I just don't understand the mechanics of what's going to work. I know what leads up to this. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And he kind of tells her how it's going to work. Mostly he just says, don't worry about it. Focus on the other part. He's the Son of God. He's holy and the Son of God. Two other things that she's being told really, it's the same thing, but told and repeated in another way. He's holy. He is not like the rest of us. Your first child is going to be the one it's hard for the other children to live up to because this one's holy. But also, holy as in set apart. Of course, that wouldn't be any different if you're looking at the law. As the firstborn, he'd automatically be set apart. So when it says that, it means it in a very particular way. And that's emphasized even more when it says the Son of God. Those of you here with us two weeks ago when we looked at Hanukkah in John 10, did you notice at what point they picked up rocks to kill Jesus and they called him a blasphemer? It was when he said, Son of the Most High, Because that was a divinity claim. Mary's being told again, he's divine. If it's not true, this is blasphemous. If it is true, or since it is true, this changes everything about the story. In fact, it is the story. And she seems to understand that. But in case she doesn't get it the first time, he repeats it, he emphasizes it, this is the Son of God. And 30 years later, those are going to be the same words that caused the Pharisees to pick up rocks to try to kill them because they understood and she understood and the angel's communicating this is God incarnate. It's not a normal baby. It's not a normal pregnancy, and so you don't need to worry about it. But you're not getting pregnant in the normal way. You're going to be treated as if you did, and it's shameful, but it's not true. Instead, it's an amazing Reality, the king, the Messiah is coming. Emmanuel, God with us. How's it going to happen? Verse 36, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son in another impossible birth. God is doing impossible things. That's how it's going to happen. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. This is core to our faith. It was core to Mary's experience and journey right here. But it's core to our faith. Something we need to embrace every time we come to scripture, every time we walk out of the church doors, every time we gather for worship, that we worship a God that does impossible things. His only limit is his own character. He is omni in every way. And the only qualifier on that is the one that he claims himself of, but I would never do that because that's against my character. Not that I can't and that I don't have the power to, but that I act in these ways and never opposed to them. But one of those is that he is above and beyond this physical world and so impossible things is what he does whenever he feels like it. And to draw our attention to him and praise his name, for nothing will be impossible with God And then Mary has an amazing teenage response. And Mary said, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary says, all right, let's go. It's an amazing teenager moment. I don't know that an older adult could do it, to be honest. Except, those of you that are older we see Elizabeth on a similar journey. Not the same journey, but a similar journey. This is what happens, happens in next and following the, that moment. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in a womb. And Mary was, or Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. I always remember this wrong, by the way. I always think it's John the Baptist filled with the Holy Spirit. It's spelled out that it's Elizabeth that is filled with the Holy Spirit in this moment. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? And there's a total joyful moment, by the way, there of John the Baptist knows he's in the presence of God. How cool is that? Have fun wrestling with that and thinking that through this week. And I don't mean wrestling in a bad way. I mean wrestling in a good way. The two babies get in proximity to another, and John goes, I did this with the youth group a little while, or a week or two ago, but John goes, full Buddy the Elf moment. Jesus, I know him. No joke, it's, it's Buddy the Elf. They stole it from the Christmas story, okay? Not, probably not really, but kind of feels like it. That's what John the Baptist does. And Elizabeth says, the older person, by the way, looks at the teenager and says, you're blessed of all the women. That, by the way, does not mean that Mary herself is holy or that the Catholic theology of the Immaculate Conception, which if you didn't understand it, is that Mary was born sinless. Scripture is clear that Mary also needed Jesus as her Savior. That Mary is carrying God incarnate who will save her, too, because she, though favored, still needs God's grace. Do not get that confused. Scripture is very clear on that. Why is this granted me the mother of the Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then Mary goes into poetry, music, both Probably all, the both option, all of the above. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. This is the mag- magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Even Mary knew that she was in need of a Savior. God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. She stays for three months. Why three months? Because John the Baptist shows up and Elizabeth has her hands full. And it's time for Mary to go back. But Mary's three months along now and she's starting to show. And Joseph's sitting at home and finds out Mary's having a baby. And I know that the stork didn't come either. So what am I going to do? But we'll get to that next week. What do we do with all this? What are we to be reminded of a, of? a story that we keep coming back to wonderfully every Christmas time. Number one, we believe as Christians and we celebrate the impossible. That doesn't mean we embrace every ridiculous, impossible idea that ever happens. We should not be weird conspiracy theorists that nobody believes anything from because we believe everything but we ought to be biblical conspiracy theorists in the right way, not the crazy way, because there's those two. But that we look and we say, when Scripture says it's impossible, I say, awesome. That means God's in the room. I believe when he says impossible things that they're to be celebrated not, and not explained away. Because we believe and celebrate the impossible. Because with God, as scripture points out several times, including here, nothing is impossible. God does what he wants to do. And when God declares that it's going to happen, it is unshakable. And it is secure and we can believe it no matter how outlandish. And it really doesn't get wackier than a virgin birth and the resurrection of the dead except when you get to the theological reality, realities of grace to the enemies of God. And instead of being enemies or left as enemies because of grace, we're made children of God. That trumps even virgin birth and resurrection. They're highlights of the spiritual reality going on. We believe and celebrate the impossible because with God, nothing is impossible. And that you're familiar with it and because there's a widespread celebration of the season does not mean that we should lose sight of the craziness of Christmas. This is ridiculous. Parents, if your teenager, teenage kid shows up in your room one evening and says, Mom, Dad, I'm pregnant, or, or my girlfriend's pregnant, but I need you to know I didn't do anything. You're not going to believe them, nor should you. Because we know about the stork too. We know how this world works. Mary was no country bumpkin, she, just because she lived in the country. She understood. This is a crazy story because it's supposed to wake us up. God was doing something that was not typical. And it needed to not be typical. If you really think through the theological implications that the Bible spells out, he needed to be fully divine and he needed to be fully human and it needed to be perfectly united in the one person of Christ. Or theologically, we are off the rails, but also salvifically, we are in trouble if any of that equation is not in play. That Christmas is crazy should never be something we forget just because there's a mall Santa everywhere, even if there's no longer a mall everywhere. This story is crazy. And it's crazy, amazing, and true. But don't lose sight of the craziness of Christmas. Instead, be captivated by an amazing teenage servant of God that we see embracing the impossible reality of the virgin birth, of God incarnate, of an eternal king coming from Bethlehem and Nazareth. And in response, celebrate Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. That's the Christmas story. Let's pray. Lord, mighty and holy, we praise your name. This is crazy that we, your former enemies, are welcomed before you to praise your name and you bless us and call us your children. Lord, we thank you for Christmas. Lord, I thank you that the world celebrates at Christmas, even though it doesn't understand it, but we pray that our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and even our enemies through that celebration, would come to be reminded of your greatness and that they would come and join us in worship. That it wouldn't just be a story of gift-giving, but instead would be a celebration of our greatest gift, the birth of Christ and an offer of salvation that comes through the cross. Lord, we praise your name. Amen.